welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and we have a very special guest today. Dr. William Malone, a board-certified endocrinologist. He's a graduate of Stanford University and New York University Medical School. He completed a residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center. He's been in clinical practice since 2008 and holds an appointment as an assistant clinical professor of endocrinology from the Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine. Welcome to Savage Minds. I first read about your work, both between your Twitter feed, your Quillette piece that you co-authored with Colin Wright and Julia Robertson, and then other places that you've had an input into this debate. How did you learn about the dangers inherent in the medical and hormonal treatment of transgender people. I mean, how did you come into this? Sure. So I think um, a couple things um, happened at the same time. Uh, And this was, this was probably, this was um, 2017. So about three years ago, three and a half years ago, um, two things happened simultaneously. Uh, One was, Um, at the um, Endocrine Society uh, International Meeting, which is attended by, uh, you know, thousands of endocrinologists and primary care doctors and uh, and others. Um, At that meeting, uh, uh, the uh, Endocrine Society essentially um, presented a set of guidelines for um, adolescents and children with gender dysphoria. Uh, and at that presentation, um, there was a radical shift, uh, from the previous, uh, set of guidelines uh, that had been many years before. And, uh, you know, as I sat in the audience there and was listening, um, uh, basically the guidelines were, um, pro affirmation. So, you know, uh, the message to us, uh, from, the presenters, you know, the writers of the guidelines, they'll uh, get up and present their uh, their guidelines in front of you know this massive audience. Um, uh, the message was essentially, you know, your job as an endocrinologist now is to um, affirm uh, medically, um, uh, you know, adolescents who have gender dysphoria and are requesting medical therapy, uh, <clears throat> and you know, those, uh, uh, that essentially means giving puberty blockers and, um, cross-sex hormones. So for a woman, it would be testosterone for, um, for a female testosterone for a male, uh, estrogen and others. Um, and that cascade of hormonal treatments, uh, if initiated at the early stage that, uh, the guidelines and the guideline authors were, uh, recommending, um, results in, uh, likely permanent infertility, sterility, essentially, and so that was, uh, you know, that's a that's a dramatic intervention. Uh, if if you you know intervene medically uh, in a young person's life and they uh, are essentially sterilized as a consequence of that intervention, uh, that that seemed like a big deal. And uh, I, you know, I've said this before talking to other folks. I said, well, uh, you know, there must have been a titanic shift in in the literature, there must've been a study that I missed or, you know, some, some, uh, uh, some advancement uh, to justify such uh, a 
uh, dramatic uh, intervention. And uh, unfortunately, uh, when I started to look at the sources and the data that was referenced uh, in uh, the guidelines, uh, that, that data did not exist. There, there was not good justification uh, for those interventions. So that was alarming. And this, this was, you know, this started to occur right about the same time that um, I started getting uh, phone calls from primary care doctors, uh, basically saying, hey, we're, we're seeing this new phenomenon of uh, primarily young, uh, you know, right around the time of puberty or just after puberty, uh, uh, adolescent females um, who are declaring themselves as transgender or non-binary. Uh, it's, it's occurring in uh, groups of uh, young girls uh, so one member of, a, of a, a friend group will declare a transgender identification and then others will follow. Um, and, uh, you know, these, you know, the, the primary docs were telling me, you know, these, uh, you know, their patients, many of them had histories of, of trauma as children or, uh, you know, were uh, struggling with uh, the emergence of uh, same-sex attraction, um, things like this. And so those two things started to happen at the same time. Um, and then, you know, I had some uh, limited exposure to um, uh, this, you know, this area of endocrinology uh, through training and uh, earlier career, um, which I can, you know, which I can discuss. There was, you know, there was basically a, an original framework for thinking about uh, transgenderism uh, um, that uh, was, you know, based on biological reality. Uh, and uh, it was kind of a niche uh, uh, focus, um, uh, but you know I can I can go into that a little bit better. But uh, the the main uh, thing that occurred is in 2017, and this had been happening you know prior to me uh, seeing it uh, first person. Uh, but a dramatic shift essentially from the old paradigm of understanding uh, what would cause an individual to uh, uh, declare a transgender identification and then pursue medical and surgical interventions. I do know that the history of this medicine is highly contestable. There are studies that show that even not just children, but amongst adults, the benefits of cross-sex hormones are not definitive. I mean, I'm not seeing literature that, that proves that this is actually helping. And I do wonder, aside from the issue of particularly children, although there are logical issues why we would be concerned about children that can't grant consent, that are making life-changing, even disabling decisions from mm -hmm. the ages of 14 or something. But yeah. if you go back to the mid-20th century with the emergence of this kind of, I'll even call it, Again, no offense to people in this profession, but it, it, it comes off to me as a bit of quackery in the sense of when you look at what John Money did and right. what was happening around the Jenner Clinic that eventually formed at Johns Hopkins, then the dissolution right. of that clinic in 79, the quick yeah. formation of WPATH on the heels of that. This has all the markings of a lobby group more than an actual peer-reviewed scientifically based mission, let's say. Mm -hmm. What can you say to our listeners about how the 
the result of I have gender dysphoria, or as you wrote in one article, you're not born on the wrong body, but that was the myth. I was born in the wrong body. All of these kinds of cries for help both reek of either mental health issues and or sort of tropes from the medieval period, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, this is what the Catholic Church was invested in at one point, like trying to cure the the spirit through the quote-unquote torture of the body, if I might put it that way. And I'm just wondering, how is it that medicine, quickly after World War II, especially in North America, got invested in curing what might have appeared to be to doctors to be a man not at home in his skin because they were these were mostly male patients at the time cross-dressers or repressed homosexuals as Mm -hmm. was often diagnosed right Mm -hmm. yes yeah that was the original framework essentially um for you know mostly men who are seeking transition um either um you know auto they had autogonophilia so they're heterosexual men who uh, were you know sexually aroused by the uh, thought of themselves as women. Um, this has been described by uh, Ray Blanchard uh, in in uh, some detail. Or uh, as you mentioned, um, you know men who were same sex attracted and essentially, uh, you know traditionally they came from uh, backgrounds where that was um, not accepted, and so you know they uh, were um, uh, you know felt rejected and ostracized essentially. Uh, and so that was the original framework uh, for uh, why an individual, you know, why men would um, uh, seek to transition. Um, so, you know, you've, you're right there. When you look at the long-term studies uh, on folks who have had these interventions, um, you know, study after study and, uh, you know, uh, um, systematic reviews of studies have really failed to show any benefit from these interventions. Now there are folks who will say that these interventions have helped them. uh, But when you objectively look at the data, um, you can't actually show that you can't actually prove that. And I think that's, you know, one of the most alarming uh, things, uh, you know, from my standpoint is that the, the lingo, and the language and the guidelines coming out of the medical societies uh, is in stark contrast, you know, so it's very, you know, pro-affirmation and, you know, um, you know, really almost uncurious about why somebody would uh, declare themselves uh, to be the opposite sex, uh, really, you know, um, dismissive of psychotherapy. So the language coming out of the medical professionals and the medical societies it, uh, does not reflect the underlying uh, reality of uh, the studies that have been done in this area, uh, basically showing, uh, well, you know, failing to show uh, especially long-term benefit. Um, and that's really been one of uh, one of the things that motivated me to start speaking up was. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem right. Uh, it's not right to, uh, um, give a patient an expectation or to, uh, essentially give them a false hope or to misrepresent the uh, validity of the data, um, 
if they're contemplating these interventions, you know, physicians are, are supposed to do the opposite. We're supposed to be, uh, you know, objective uh, analyzers of uh, the literature and then, you know, package that information up into a, a digestible um, uh, uh, bits that, that patients uh, can, uh, you know, use to help them make decisions. And uh, certainly in this area, it's, it's, uh, that's not occurring. Um, and, it, and it's in stark contrast to how other discussions occur with patients and how information is, is transmitted and uh, analyzed. And it's been very, you know, it's been very distressing. Um, and there are many, uh, many physicians and researchers who feel the same way. And, you know, I've had the um, good fortune to uh, uh, be working with a number of them uh, through through an organization um, called the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. And essentially, that's our that's our point: is that you know the rhetoric is is far uh, is is really divorced from the reality of uh, the the data here, and it's a disservice to individuals um, with gender dysphoria uh, to tell them, oh, the, you know, these interventions are going to uh, relieve your dysphoria. And, uh, you know, this is the only path, uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's settled science and, uh, uh, this is the only path that you should go down. And that's really a misrepresentation of, uh, of reality. What does the data say about those who go on to take cross-sex hormones? And what would the difference be between, let's say, a survey of people who identify as transgender and getting their quote unquote satisfaction survey and right. what a scientific survey would in fact differently yeah. read. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a great point. And I think it really gets to the heart of the issue. So if you subjectively ask an individual, are you satisfied with the, you know, the treatments you've received, um, et cetera, uh, uh, versus, so that would be a, you know, a subjective, um, uh, questionnaire, uh, versus objective, uh, markers of psychological health. Uh, so utilization of, um, you know, psychological medications, anti-anxiety drugs, antidepressants, uh, hospitalizations for suicide attempt, um, um, uh, things like this. Uh, so, and, and I think that gets really to the heart of the matter is, is when you look at objective data and, you know, this has been done, for example, it was done in 2016 by the, uh, by CMS, the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and they looked at uh, many dozen studies and found them to be uh, very poor quality in their design. Most of them uh, were, you know, good information essentially could not be obtained. Uh, and then the studies that were done uh, decently, um, you know, there was no benefit shown. And, uh, and this, this has repeated itself essentially over and over again. Uh, there was a, you know, a long-term um, or a population-based study out of uh, Sweden there too now, uh, looking at long-term effects of uh, one of surgery and then the other of hormones and surgery. And these studies, you know, the first study showed, uh, you know, uh, rates of suicide are still elevated uh, after transitions. Uh, years later, and then the most recent analysis um, initially claimed that surgical interventions uh, reduced, um, you know, markers of uh, uh, mental health uh, st 
status. So essentially, you know, less, less hospitalizations, fewer hospitalizations, uh, uh, fewer utilizations of uh, um, uh, antipsychotic uh, drugs and antidepressants, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, uh, that study was reanalyzed re um, and uh, showed uh, no benefit. They actually had to correct the study and, 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 uh, and report the truth, which was, okay, this analysis, again, failed to show any benefit from these interventions. So the, so the objective data is basically failing to show long-term intervention. Uh, but that information, in my opinion, is not reflected in the guidelines. And, and certainly uh, it appears not to be being delivered to individuals with gender dysphoria based on you know, many reports of, for example, detransitioners coming back and saying, no, I was never counseled and told the truth uh, about the data. You know, I was told affirmation was the way to relieve my gender dysphoria. I was offered little or no counseling, uh, and uh, uh, and you know down the intervention pathway I went. It seems to be the case with many people I've spoken with who have gone through these various forms of transition from hormonal to okay. surgical, that even though at the time, even if they had been informed, they were like very young. Some of them were even minors, making decisions yes. that. If I have to think of some of the stupid decisions I even made in my 20s, you know, heaven forbid I'm held to that. I, you know, and we also know that the human brain, depending on what studies you rely upon, but the human brain isn't really fully formed until anywhere I've read between 27 and 29. So mm -hmm. <laughs> how is it possible that we're giving carte blanche to extremely young and impressionable people who, as you yeah. noted, when one person in their peer group transitions, it's often a domino effect. We've seen this yes. even in Brighton. When you talk to kids there, they will talk about all their friends who have either identified as non-binary in a non-medical way to many mm -hmm. other friends who have begun medical transition. And it seems to me that the science isn't being followed carefully enough by sociological, even anthropological studies that are able to account for this rise. Because as I put it, I say to you know some people, well, look, this is the only kind of medical pathology that has been so politicized. There's a few others, by the way, um, mm. chronic Lyme disease, Mm -hmm. uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. I've gotten death threats for writing on those articles, uh, articles on those mm -hmm. subjects. But this is politicized to such a degree that we are told how to speak about these individuals. Doctors are told to include the DSM, changing the language the last two editions from it being a medical pathology to, you know, not a disorder. Now it's just a condition. So we're going, you know, mm -hmm. light on what are serious issues because no judgment you know so many of us suffer from various emotional and mental health issues but why is there this conterminous push and it's a paradox especially in a country like the u.s where we have private health insurance still that mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. want it medicalized so they can have it covered in countries like the uk or or australia but they want it not declared a mental illness at the same time so that there's no stigma. And at the same time, this mm -hmm. necessarily affects treatment because in countries like the UK, I mean, I was, you know, 
raised in the United States and did my graduate work in New York, where if you're not talking about your therapist at a party in someone's kitchen, <laughs> you don't live in New York, mm. you know, I'm making a joke there, but mm. the, the, therapy mm -hmm. is, is highly embraced, a bit fetishized in New York, where in the UK, if you suggest therapy, even to a friend who's going through a breakup or something, the response will invariably be, uh, I'm not crazy. So you have on the one hand, a stigma yeah. about mental health issues within this lobby. And on the other hand, you do have people with genuine gender dys dysphoria, as you point out, who are not being steered toward perhaps better interventions. And I would argue, having read so much data on this, that the talk therapy should be stops one through 10 on the roadmap before making yeah. serious changes in the body, not just for the reasons of which you mentioned in terms of this doesn't necessarily work to lessen suicide and self-harm, but there's a whole other layer about what cross-sex hormones do to the body. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, yes. hormone replacement therapy for women undergoing menopause. We know about dangers with that. And I had written a piece for Quillette about the dangers of well, the trans and sports issue, but I also found mm -hmm. out while I was interviewing one of the doctors doing work on this subject for the Olympic Committee, he said the lessons that were learned mm -hmm. with hormone replacement with women had to be relearned. And he pointed out to the coronary drug project in the 1970s where men were given estrogen to lower the risk of cardiovascular disease. And these trials were shut down because mm -hmm. people were dying at the rate of, out of 8,341 patients in that project, at least 2,333 were known to have died by the end of the trial in February 1975, which mm -hmm. is a really high number. And so one mm -hmm. can only wonder, mm -hmm. you know, even if you want to call yourself, let's say, a trans ally to everyone's free to make their choices. Okay, let's run with that ball. Why are the negative effects and the extremely harmful effects? Because these numbers from the coronary drug trial are extremely alarming. I mean, these are deaths in the order of over 25%. So why is that not being discussed publicly, even in the media, of which mm -hmm. I'm a part? You see cheerleading going on. You don't see people or interviews with doctors who are actually chiming on uh, about the positive and the negative results, right? We're never hearing yeah. about the deaths that happened because of trans-identified females who have taken testosterone for 20 years and what that does to their bodies. Yeah, you bring up many, many good points. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, so women who take testosterone, they develop heart disease at a much higher rate than the general population, um, significantly higher. It's, you know, four to five times the odds, essentially. Uh, men who take estrogen uh, develop strokes and blood clots at roughly three times uh, baseline. So there's significant cardiovascular uh, risk. Um, and so, so I think to, you know, to, to try to answer why these things aren't being discussed um, and, and, you know, and the other just known. So, so that's something that's been known forever. So for example, if, 
you know, an endocrinologist, if, if a patient, uh, if a woman comes into an endocrinologist's office and, um, you know, he or she, you know, the endocrinologist diagnoses that patient, uh, that woman with a testosterone secreting tumor, it's, it's almost an emergency to try to find that tumor. They're usually located in the ovaries to find that tumor and to remove it because of the a negative impact on the heart. The risk of heart disease is, is so high that it, it's almost a panic when, a, when an endocrinologist uh, discovers um, a testosterone secreting tumor. Uh, so this is, as you've said, this is already known. This isn't, this isn't new, uh, yet it's, it's, it's been buried and, and now being rediscovered, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, the second that is just known in all of medicine is that the human brain is not uh, fully mature and formed until the mid twenties. Uh, and, you know, it was just part of training. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, this was reiterated is, you know, for example, um, uh, when I went through training, many um, gynecologists would, would never uh, do a hysterectomy on a woman um, before the age of 25, unless there was a life-threatening reason and, and, and it needed to be done uh, before the age of 25, because of this understanding that, uh, you know, if the woman said, no, I, you know, I, I'm done having kids or I, I don't want children, that her mind may change uh, between the age of 20 and 25. And then if you intervene uh, before that age of uh, brain maturation, uh, you may have uh, made a mistake and, and uh, denied that patient um, uh, uh, something that she would have wanted and, and would have made a different decision uh, if, if she had waited a little bit longer. Uh, so this brain maturation thing is also something that is well known in medicine and all other fields of medicine in terms of consent and, and, uh, and uh, making big decisions. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, um, you know, a couple uh, big names in the field. So folks who were advocating for psychotherapy for folks or, you know, um, some form of psychological intervention uh, counseling uh, for folks, you know, young people with gender dysphoria, um, were, were fired, you know, so Ken Zucker in, in, uh, in Canada. Um, and there was a, a doc in the U S um, uh, he was the head of a, uh, head of the, uh, uh, department of psychiatry. I forget his name in one of the Southern States here. And, uh, he was on a panel and said, you know, no, this, you know, this is an, an identity disorder. Uh, nothing's changed, uh, despite the language change and, uh, uh you know, counseling psychotherapy should be first line intervention. And, you know, he essentially his contract with his hospital was, he was essentially fired as well. And it doesn't take many examples of that to send a chill uh, through the entire uh, medical field. So, you know, a couple stories like that uh, show up in the, in the newspaper and um, immediately everybody goes silent. Uh, and, and so, um, so that's, uh, uh, the politicization of this, um, um, has, has a, a really chilling effect on, uh, dialogue. Uh, and in addition, I think there's, there's one other thing that occurred and it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly when this happened. I think this was, uh, it was between the uh, most recent version of DSM and the previous, 
And so what occurred uh, as the most, you know, the most recent version of uh, DSM uh, was being put together, um, uh, you know, patient uh, advocacy uh, was becoming a thing, let's say. And, um, you know, uh, the way I describe this is uh, basically patients were, and I'm not opposed to this, uh, but patients were invited with gender dysphoria who uh, were um, transgender identified um, were invited into those conversations. And so essentially, you know, at WPATH, for example, um, uh, you know, patients were invited to uh, give their opinion. And, and like I said, I, I support that. I don't have an issue with that at all. Um, but that lobbying effort, uh, had, in my opinion, um, an impact on the guidelines and also the DSM, uh, uh, criteria that, that came out that was not based on the scientific data. So essentially, um, that influence really has altered the language and the, uh, you know, the discussion uh, uh, that's quote unquote, even allowed to occur uh, in this area. And I, and I think that's not being discussed enough uh, either. So, so like I said, I think it's, it's great to get input from uh, uh, groups who are invested and directly impacted by guidelines and, uh, you know, by diagnostic criteria, but the physicians and the researchers with their training and experience are supposed to take that information, uh, uh, but then, you know, generate criteria that are still based on the scientific data and that's not happened. So, you know, the guidelines, in my opinion, are more reflective of the uh, lobby interests versus the actual scientific data. Well, that, that's very clear when you go on social media around the change of the DSM four to five, when yeah, it was yeah. called back then, uh, not so many years ago, let's say five years ago, it was gender identity disorder. And the lobby pushed to have the disorder removed and even mm -hmm. the terms of gender identity. So now it's called gender dysphoria. But mm -hmm. here's the thing, as, as someone who I've written about this now for many years and I found it really shocking to have people tell me that I am cis. At, mm. Because as a woman, and I, men deal with this too, boys deal with this too, to different degrees and mostly smaller degrees, I'd argue, in certain ways to other, in other ways, maybe vestiture, they have to struggle more. But because I can wear anything I want and I will never be trolled on the street and, you know, made fun mm -hmm. of. But one thing that yep. really struck me is that I was constantly having to tell people uh, in real life and social media, but I don't have a gender identity. See, this is the myth that's mm -hmm. been peddled mm -hmm. by this lobby that I think is the nut inside of this entire problematic, if I can call it yes. that, because yes. the assumption is an unprovable God, let's say. Uh, mm -hmm. We are told that we all have a gender identity. And if you're wearing a tie, you're conforming. If you're wearing a 
uh, I don't know, something out of uh, Barbarella, what Jane Fonda wore mm -hmm. in Barbarella, you're not. Yep. And so yep. well, this is a bit absurd to me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a scholar. I've done work in comparative cultural studies and anthropology. And I know that gender is completely social. And I don't even think this. We have evidence of this. This is why mm -hmm. if you go to Morocco, you go and you wear a jalaba or a kaftan and the jalabas for women are cut quite differently than the mm -hmm. jalabas for men. The same thing happens with male and female style clothing in the same Muslim world, but on the other side of North Africa and Egypt. And gender is extremely performative and extremely linked to vestiture in every single mm -hmm. culture in the world. You know, people fell in love with In the Mood for Love, you know, 10 years ago with Maggie Chung matching the wallpaper or, you know, 50 years before that, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg with Catherine Deneuve matching the wallpaper in that movie. But these were all cinematic pretenses to to cash in on hyper feminine actresses who were fitting a movie maker's ideal. And mm -hmm. this is no different in, in the way we live our lives day to day, with the one exception is that we're all pretty fuddy-duddy, especially during lockdown. I mean, how many people have had time to even think or care about what they're going to wear? We've all been a gender <laughs> in our wardrobe choices, okay. you know, and the whole thing to me reeks of sexism. And so the, I point back yeah. to the mid-1950s when New Zealand physician John Money came to, you know, the U.S. and was working in the U.S. And there was a lot of study around the Kinsey Project as well of sexuality and sexual perversion because in the Cold War era, there was a lot mm -hmm. of forbidden topics and sex was one of them. So I do wonder why medical practice buttressed with the talk therapists, some of whom are, like you've mentioned, the ones who've gotten into trouble for saying that we should go ahead with talk therapy, and the other side, talk therapists, who are the ones underwriting the medical transition. They're the ones rubber stamping, this person really is gender dysphoric after two 20-minute meetings. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that so much of this quote-unquote science around gender identity is based on mid 20th century stereotypes of gender, which is a bit redundant because all gender is, is a stereotype, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah. how is it that today medicine is curating yes. a cultural stereotype? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating question. And, and um, I agree, you know, fully the, the you know, the, the core of this is this, this concept of, you know, gender identity that is a nebulous, um, uh, fantasy, I call it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I think perhaps, um, so the, the dyad, the couple with the, uh, patient lobby essentially, right. So is, uh, and, and I've witnessed this, there's a, you need a small group of uh, physicians who will uh, basically push for the positions of the lobby. And, um, you know, these physicians often, you know, they have a personal, 
some personal uh, uh, interest or, uh, you know, they, they'll likely have some gain uh, from this as well, either in terms of status or uh, monetary gain. Um, but when you have, and there's, there's a really fascinating book um, called, uh, it's called Great and Desperate Cures. Um, let see if I can find it here. It was written, uh, yeah, Dr. Valent, uh, Valenstein. Um, so it's the rise and decline of psychosurgery and other radical treatments for mental illness. Really fascinating look. And he looks at a similar phenomenon to the, the uh, you know, the transgender uh, issue. And basically it was a similar, so for example, with lobotomy, it was a similar um, phenomenon. Um, so in the issue uh, with, uh, you know, transgender medicine, you have a lobby with a particular point of view that um, is at odds with biological reality and the science that uh, currently exists on the topic. And then you have a small group of physicians who are advocating for that position. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're the same, it's the same small group of docs who are writing all of the society guidelines and giving the lectures at the main, um, you know, meetings and really, uh, you know, advocating for, uh, for the positions of this lobby. And that seems to be a really, uh, you know, that combination um, can take bad ideas and push them very, very far. And, and I think that's what we're witnessing. So, uh, and, and then if you create an environment where you'll get fired, if you speak up, um, you know, there are lots of excuses that physicians who have concerns will tell themselves, uh, so that they don't speak up. They'll say, well, that's not my area of expertise. Um, you know, well, uh, you know, these folks who are talking about this, they seem to be experts. So I'm just going to let them figure it out or, oh, well, medicine goes through these cycles and uh, this will eventually work itself out. Uh, meanwhile, you know, many, many folks are being harmed, um, um, along the way. So, so I think that's, that's probably from my best estimation, what's been the driving force. Indeed, we're seeing um, with that, then the, the academic surge in producing a rhetoric around this. And I'm part of that. Uh, I did my PhD, well, I, I started my master's in the late 80s, early 90s, and went on to do a mm -hmm. PhD where in some of my posts where I taught, I was asked to teach queer theory. And I was mm -hmm. happy to teach it before, as I say, it jumped the shark in the sense of what queer theory meant in the early 90s has nothing to do with what's going on, like zilch. There was never even a reference to, in the major theorists, it was, it was not about uh, surgery or medical or quasi-medical or cosmetic uh, fixing of the body. It was very much about understanding even historical literary texts. There's a famous scholar from Duke who wrote about Victorian literature and talked about romance between men through women. Um, it, was, it was an interesting period to look at how history was being re-examined with the opening, because of AIDS largely, the opening of society towards understanding same-sex 
sexuality. Okay. But it went mm -hmm. somewhere else. After I left that, I got into, you know, my own work on the field in, in the Middle East. And I, I was really out of it for many years. And then it hit me one day, I was in New York, I was back in New York in 2002. And I saw all these advertisements for LGBT. And I thought, what's the T? I remember asking someone, what's the T? And they said, transgender. And I said, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Like, that's sort of like, if you go to a golf convention, and they've stuck in there people who play the kazoo, like, what does that have to do with anything? You know, we're golf players, we don't play the kazoo. And I know silly analogies, but that's how it read to me. I didn't really understand mm -hmm. it. And someone tried to explain it to me quite badly because mm -hmm. they said, well, mm -hmm. it's just that, you know, how you're born in, you know, you were born this way. And I said, well, that's debatable. There's a whole bunch of literature mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. 90s uh, within the gay community of people arguing this. Michael Signorelli in New York City. Oh my God, there was mm -hmm. a long standing mm -hmm. debate, Andrew Sullivan, about this. And be that as it may, the gay community never once said, you have to call me heterosexual because that's the only way I can compare mm. it to the trans movement. The trans mm. movement is asking whether or not they have genuine de gender dysphoria, but as a lobby, the request is, you must say my preferred pronouns, you must refer to me in this way. And as you know, from the feminists advocating mm. on social media and in very well-organized groups in many countries, they are making the point of safety mm -hmm. in terms of, which sex has a propensity historically and, and mathematically to sexually assault or rape another. And now this has become quite politicized still mm -hmm. on the left of the political spectrum. And I shake my head because I'm on the left and mm -hmm. I have no words for what I'm seeing is a very flat earth approach to science. It's really pick and mm -hmm. choose because you cannot, as you and I have discussed some of the evidence behind this, this medicine. And I would hesitate to say that transgender medicine can be put on a paper without quote marks around the medicine word, because mm -hmm. so much of this has been politically germinated and homegrown. It has gone through this trajectory of much of society being kind to these people, sympathetic because it, they do view many people, I think are good hearted and say, well, if so-and-so has a X problem, we should be sympathetic to that. Obviously not everyone's mm -hmm. on board with all mental health issues. There are people who hate drug addicts. They hate people who have issues with alcohol or mm -hmm. drugs of any sort. Okay. But I think the goodwill of people historically with gender issues has been to give it a pass. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, maybe 20 years ago. And today we're on the other end of this pendulum where if you don't call me she, I'm going to troll you for days and mm -hmm. days on internet and call your employer and have you fired. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, Kenneth Zucker, his experience at CAMH in Toronto Mm -hmm. really st struck me, as did the mm -hmm. ensuing discussions following various pieces about him, including ev evidently Jesse Singal's piece is probably the mm -hmm. best known, but 
you know, Kenneth Zucker was eventually cleared, you know, and still the yes. myth, uh, the lie mm -hmm. perpetuates itself within the trans community. Oh, yeah. People yeah. are not correcting the yeah. lie. And again, Ray Blanchard, yeah. similar thing happened with him in terms of his being monstered by people in the trans community who say that autogynephilia well. is not yeah. a thing, even though there are many trans right. people who admit it's a thing because they say yeah. I'm autogynephilic. So yeah. Yeah. we've got on the one hand, hard science, which is what you, you labor in facts. You, I mean, there's no way okay. I could go to you and say, I need to have my hormones measured and you wouldn't just do some kind of crystal ball out of the <laughs> wizard of Oz right. and go, hello, my pretties. Yeah. And you're fine. You're right to have a child this minute. You would use science. On the other hand, the other section of the transgender, um, pathologization, if I can call it that, comes from a mm -hmm. therapist. And what I'm mm -hmm. witnessing outside of these fields, studying this still, is that a lot has been pushed forward by people who are not, in fact, scientists, people who are talk therapists, who, mm, if I sound cynical, I apologize, but who see a cash incentive here. <laughs> People have opened up mm -hmm. therapies specifically focusing on transgender teenagers or transgender men. Or uh, I've seen voice coaches offering, their whole mm -hmm. studio is about offering co courses to men to sound like women um, or mm -hmm. men who identify as transgender to sound like women. And mm -hmm. I do raise an eyebrow to this because we're seeing a full attempt to blow identity into a leg of capitalism, which I think mm -hmm. we should be ethically and morally questioning rather than supporting, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, you can see that here in the United States. So in 2010, there were, I think, six um, gender clinics. And in 2020, there were more than 50 <clears throat> so whenever, you know, whenever there's a, a financial incentive, uh, you know, even in medicine here, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, folks figure out a way to, 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 uh, to capitalize on that. And so, that, yeah, I fully agree. And the, the, uh, there, there's a, there's a danger to that. And, you know, physicians by their training, um, right. We should be resistant to those, uh, those temptations. Uh, it, it's, um, it's not about money. It's about, uh, uh, you know, getting, reducing the suffering, essentially reducing the suffering of other people uh, and using the scientific method to do that. Um, and, and, you know, being meticulous in our data analysis and, and, uh, you know, as honest as, as we possibly know how to be uh, so that, folks don't get uh, false impressions because <clears throat> when somebody's, you know, when somebody's distressed, uh, they want relief from that distress. Um, understandably, we've all experienced that. And um, it's, it's very easy uh, for somebody to be misled um, when they're in a vulnerable state. Uh, and, and that's what I see happening is, is because of the misrepresentation uh, of the actual um, uh, data uh, you know, folks who are in distress are, are being uh, misled um, and, uh, and promised a relief that uh, has not proven uh, uh, to, be, uh, to be there. And, 
and and it's been you know distressing to me to you know you mentioned where you know where is the where's the curiosity um uh you know the uh, where's the scientific curiosity to get to the bottom of this issue and and to figure out okay what is the best method uh to to help somebody who has this particular form of distress and you know we we have a framework in place. I mean, that's, that's the entire point of, of Western medicine is, is you use the scientific method and, and, uh, you know, analytical tools, uh, to, to answer those questions. And then you sit in front of your patient who has distress and you say, okay, here's the data. And based on this data, um, you know, there's more chance than not that this intervention will help you or, I cannot recommend this intervention at this time because um, I, there is no evidence that it will actually relieve your distress. And, um, and so, you know, that conversation has, has just been, been warped um, uh, because of the political, uh, because of the political climate, you know, and I think it's, it's understandable that the uh, folks who are suffering from gender dysphoria um, would you know, that the, the lobby, you could say any lobby, um, you know, if, if they're distressed and they're, they're seeking relief from distress and, uh, you know, you know, so, you know, not calling me by my, my pronouns, for example, causes distress. Well, that's, that's part of the identity disorder, um, is, is how I see it. Uh, and then, you know, that opens up an entire, uh, conversation about, okay, we've got an individual with, uh, with distress. And so, um, what is society's response to that going to be, you know, from a medical standpoint, um, you know, you know, we, we deal in, we deal in reality and, and we're supposed to at least and in, in science. And so, you know, we, we should say, well, um, you know, there's, you know, I understand that you feel that you were born in the opposite sex body, but you know, there's, there's no evidence that that's possible. Um, and I understand that it's, you know, the, this is distressing to you. Um, but if, you know, we look at the data, um, I, I can't show you convincingly that socially transitioning or, um, medically or surgically, uh, transitioning will, will relieve uh, certainly in the long term. you know, there might be some short-term relief and, you know, some folks do describe that, you know, uh, you know, it's called the honeymoon, the honeymoon phase after uh, interventions, then that wears off and, and leads to, uh, you know, a desire for an additional intervention. Then there's, you know, this kind of perpetuates itself. Uh, but if you look at long-term, long-term studies, you know, I, I can't in, in good conscience uh, uh, tell you that uh, these interventions uh, will, will benefit you uh, psychologically long-term. Um, so that, that's the sort of conversation that, that, that should be happening between providers and patients. And that's the sort of conversation that happens in, in all other areas of medicine. And it's fascinating to me, you know, uh, you know, a pediatrician, for example, um, you know, if you ask a pediatrician about, you know, prescribing antibiotics for, you know, overprescription of antibiotics, oh no, you know, the science says, and the data says you shouldn't do that. And we're going to create antibiotic resistance. And, most of these infections are viral and there's no place for that. But then in the next paragraph, uh, they'll speak about transgender medicine, um, as if, 
completely disregarding and, and I and I don't yet know I think this is mostly the fault of the uh, uh, of the medical societies because they basically synthesize data and then they put out you know digestible uh, uh, points for busy physicians I think that's probably the reason for this but you know they'll speak of, of affirmation and transition as if it's uh, settled science in the same way that they speak about uh, other areas of medicine that uh, are uh, 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 you know are settled, uh, so it's been really interesting. And and as a consequence of that, I I do blame the medical societies to a large part because it's their job to uh, uh, help out basically busy um, clinicians uh, so that they can maximally uh, help. Uh, help their patients. And that's, that's just not happening. They're, they're providing, in my opinion, false information to, uh, to the general uh, medical populace. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. I was turned on to an article a couple hours ago that was circulating Twitter that came out from the Journal of the American Medical Association two days ago, entitled, this blows my mind, Perceptions and Motivations for Uterus Transplant in Transgender Women. The authors of this are, well, there's a group, it would seem, two of them have bachelors, three, four of them have bachelors, researchers from the UK. What are they researching? When you look at the meat of this article, <laughs> it's basically a survey asked of transgender identified man, males if they would like to have a uterine transplant. This strikes me as one, not at all scientific. If I run around asking people you know, would you like to go on holiday this very second and we'll pay for it? I mean, who wouldn't, who wouldn't say yes to that, you know, and cancel COVID? Yeah, all of right. us would say yep. yes to that. We're asking, you know, these kinds of studies, quote unquote studies, and I've seen them also, a lot of op-ed pieces in science that get circulated on Twitter sphere as this study. And then you're like, you have to tell the person that's not a study, right. that's an op-ed, it's like 200 words. Um, they're being circulated as proof of something. And I am a bit worried about, you know, when I saw this, I thought this is quite Frankensteinian. Women's bodies are being treated. And I focus on women here because we're not seeing the same kind of reification of men's bodies by women who identify as transgender, but we're seeing it in terms of cancer mm -hmm. societies, doctors, uh, surgeries, etc. It's cervix havers, people with cervix, people who menstruate, mm -hmm. pregnant people, mm -hmm. uh, people right. with breasts, you yeah. know, and I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I started a few years ago, I started calling men, I mean, uh, LOL, um, you know, front noodlers, because I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, let's just all make up names for everyone else, because this is deeply offensive. But I do feel like women have become this, this shop, like a mechanic's shop of, you know, take out the old carburetor and let's put this new one in and how in earth is the medical profession i mean this is the journal of the american medical association running yes. a basic survey as fake science i mean this is 
absolute hokum. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there was uh, an article recently um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, kind of the you know considered the pinnacle of of medical journals, um, and uh, it was it was an opinion piece, but it you know it was it was featured front and center, and you know the uh, the journal tweeted out um, you know to bring attention to it, and basically the argument was that you know, uh, sex should not be recorded on birth certificates any further. And this was argument was made by a couple of, uh, you know, the authors were physicians and, you know, that example and the examples uh, you've given, um, uh, and, uh, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of resistance, uh, coming out of, um, midwife uh, groups and doulas, uh, uh, basically, you know, groups essentially mandating that uh, they they change their language um, in the ways you've described, uh, which is understandably um, shocking and uh, distressing. Um, and um, you, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this has the uh, potential to spill over into other areas of medicine, but you know the the danger always is if if there's uh, this sort of uh, dissociation from reality occurring in one area of medicine, um, could it bleed over into other areas? And uh, and that's you know and then essentially um, you start to to challenge the, the entire foundation of, of Western medicine, which is, you know, using the scientific method and, and biological reality to, to make decisions. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't suspect that that will be thrown out the, out the door anytime soon, but it, it makes you, it certainly makes me concerned uh, to see this in one area of medicine. Uh, and, um, you know, I think many of us thought, well, uh, this will kind of run its course and eventually enough folks will say, you know what, this, this doesn't make any sense. We're not going to do this. We're not going to go along with it, but the opposite has happened. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's showing up in JAMA. It's showing up in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's not just in kind of throwaway journals anymore. It's, it's been mainstreamed um, and it's being um, institutionalized uh, and also um, legalized. You know, it's, you know, in the United States, um, you know, there's a big push uh, uh, to put gender identity into, uh, you know, protected uh, uh, class. So, uh, so it's gone in a short period of time uh, from uh, a niche and a, and a fringe uh, to uh, to mainstream, um, and um, it, it's been, you know, um, it's been shocking actually to see. I, I figured in the last three years that many folks would, many more folks would start to speak out, and my assumption had been that you know, other physicians in the field just did not have the, uh, the foundation, uh, the background, uh, or the, uh, uh, familiarity with the literature, uh, to feel comfortable speaking out. And so that's one of the things that I've been working at is trying to, uh, 
to help physicians get comfortable with the literature to see in this area to see really how weak it is um, uh, so that they'll have some confidence to uh, you know to question it um, and we'll see we'll see if that happens well uh, well let's hope i mean i also find the the lack of understanding about how these procedures came into being part of the most shocking part to me you know in the sense of going back to you know money he got his career start in this field by quote yeah. unquote fixing the baby David Reimer, who yeah. because of a botched circumcision was left without a penis. And it was, right. it was money who said, well, we need to turn this child into a girl. And I'm right. horrified just thinking of, of that, honestly, because in the fifties mm -hmm. and sixties, you know, medical ethics were, at the level of, well, let's electroshock um, these thoughts away, you know, with little to mm -hmm. no research at all on these methods. And we know even, you know, Francis Farmer, what, what results were for many of these people to include a lifetime mm -hmm. of depression and, and suicide. Well, this surgery of baby Reimer ended up quite badly for him. And, and yes. it's very shocking to me that people are very unaware about what happens when we invoke lifelong changes on the body of even adults, but especially children, and, and how this has taken hold, the kind of harassment that Lisa Littman went through for writing mm -hmm. a well-founded and well-researched study on you know ROGD mm -hmm. rapid onset gender dysphoria, but no, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. has her also likened to you know the uh, what is it ad hominem ad Hitlerium. You know everyone's a Nazi mm -hmm. who disagrees with this lobby when clearly uh, people are from all political persuasions. Because I think what we all have in common, regardless of our political persuasions, is that we value open debate. And we, we value science. And, and I'm rather shocked right. by how this lobby is purporting to have science where its ethos in historically was based in something that was a tragic accident of a baby who was then consciously mutilated by a, a, a physician having a test go at a child who mm -hmm. later, I mean, because mm -hmm. this child also had a, a, a twin sibling and, you know, suicide was the end result. So yes. I really have to wonder why media, mass media, you go to CNN and these days, especially since yesterday, because of Biden right. trashing basically mm -hmm. Title IX with this new... Uh, legislation that will erase some of the protections that Trump had put into place for women and girls sports, aside from mm -hmm. women and girls bodily autonomy and the right for them to declare who can and who cannot touch their body in the sense of, do I have the right to tell a police officer? No, you can't because you're not female, you know? Mm -hmm. And these are now questions that are coming full center two days mm -hmm. after a new U.S. president was sworn in. I myself am deeply shocked by some of the people in the Twitter sphere who I agree with in their arguments about gender identity being really troubling for women and children. 
but they were absolutely floored by Biden's, you know, as they saw it, a last minute shift. I'm like, no, this is not a surprise. We all expected this because he's been saying this for a year. <laughs> he yeah, said he was yeah. going to do this in the first 10 days of office. He did it right. on his second, his first or second day of office. So yes. we're seeing now where this is becoming so hyper politicized at that I worry that there's in the States, there's little way backwards out of this. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great, that's a, yeah, that's, it's a great question. Um, um, I mean, to me, it shows, it shows the, you know, the power of an effective um, lobby. Um, You know, the, you know, lobbying is, is, is highly, highly effective. And, and especially when it's coupled with a small group of uh, advocates who are physicians, um, and, um, and it is a small, it's a relatively small group, like I said, who are, who are pushing this on multiple fronts within the medical societies. And then they're also the go-to folks out in, out in public for, uh, for the media. And, and so they've been highly effective at, uh, at shutting down, uh, discussion, debate, um, uh, you know, not allowed to question, not allowed to be curious, not allowed to raise your hand. Um, and you know, I, th- I think, I think you're right. I think if, um, so it was a, an executive order, but if legislation does get passed, uh, uh, you know, uh, with the gender identity, um, in it, yeah, it's very hard to undo. Um, and, and so, you know, I haven't, I haven't spent a lot of time, um, on the, on the legal uh, side of things, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've had my hands full with the, uh, with just the medical side of it, but, um, certainly if that uh, comes into law, um, you know, it, it, it validates, essentially this concept that is that is unscientific and, and has no basis and then it becomes much more difficult to explain to people uh, problems with it well it's it's part of law it's it's endorsed by medical societies it's it's on the news when I see it uh, you know when I watch the news I, I see this so it's it's a very it might be quite some time you know if I look at what happened with the opiate epidemic um, you know, there was a big push, right? So pain was the fifth vital sign. And, and if you were a physician and your patient's pain was not well controlled, you were a bad doctor. Uh, and you needed to ask about pain at every visit and, and ensure that it was controlled. And in, and in theory, I, you know, I certainly don't think patients should be in pain. Um, uh, and in practice, you know, we, we try to, uh, minimize pain the, the most that we can, of course, and, you know, especially specialists who, you know, pain management specialists, et cetera. Uh, uh, but uh, an effective lobby uh, basically convinced, uh, you know, almost the entirety of the medical profession uh, that uh, a certain class of opiate was not addictive and could be prescribed at will. And then there was pressure from the uh, medical societies and then also, you know, patient satisfaction surveys within hospitals well, Dr. So-and-so, uh, you know, gets a poor rating in terms of pain control, um, really shifted practice overnight. And it, it almost seems to me that it, it wasn't until, you know, there was massive destruction from the opiate epidemic uh, that people started to take a look and say, oh, maybe we've made a mistake. 
And, and so, you know, I wonder if the same thing is, is going to occur here where it's going to take, you know, significant harm before people start to realize something is occurring that should not be occurring. And that's unfortunate. Um, obviously, that shouldn't be the way that, that these things evolve. But if I, if I look honestly at how the opiate crisis ended, it was, it was litigation uh, and obvious harm uh, to patients that was visible uh, to the general population and to physicians. And then, you know, a study came out showing, oh, look, as a matter of fact, long-term opiates are no more effective than other methods of pain control. Uh, uh, and so then when it was culturally acceptable due to the harm being done to speak up against the use of opiates for pain management when they're not needed, long-term especially, when it was culturally acceptable, then the physicians said, you know, we had the confidence to say to their patients, oh, there's this study showing that these drugs don't actually work long-term. And so uh, I'm not going to prescribe you long-term opiates. And, and then, you know, it did shift rather quickly, but it, it was, you know, back, it was kind of a whiplash in a short period of time, but it took a tremendous amount of destruction and it's still playing itself out. Uh, before it got enough attention uh, where things started to to change. I've thought a lot about the generations of of how medical practice has been performed since I'm thinking of when I was living in Brooklyn in the 1990s. Every other parent I spoke to had a child who was diagnosed of, as ADHD. They were on Ritalin. Oh, I think more than 50% of New York City kids were on Ritalin in the 90s. And I do wonder from an anthropological perspective, if not, this is a continuation of the ethos of we pay attention to each other, uh, our you know, parents who are working hyper-extensive hours, we don't have quality time for kids, but let's diagnose them with something. That's the way we show love. And that mm -hmm. we've almost replaced a lack of a real life community, as they say on the internet, IRL, with mm -hmm. all of these other fixings. And I do mm -hmm. wonder if this is not cont continuing towards gender dysphoria, it's just a new way of filling that cultural void because we're not really having much of a culture when individuals are swapping stories, teenagers are swapping stories about how they're gonna be taking this dose of this hormone or how they're thinking about getting top surgery. And as you know, mm -hmm. a good deal now with the, you know, thanks to Littman's great work on this subject, we are seeing a 4,000% increase of referrals of teens in the UK alone. And mm -hmm. a good percentage of them, the majority are female. And a lot of those females are autistic. So we're seeing one problem, you know, dominoed up on another on another yeah. and it's mm -hmm. really striking to me how there seems to be no no ombudsman involved in looking at this from a meta perspective and saying what's going on here because yeah, that's a great point our culture is very and i don't just mean america or canada but western culture is very much about the customer's king and doctors particularly, you are all in a very particular position. Should a patient, especially now with Biden's attempt to wokeness, 
should a patient feel that you're saying no because you're just a bigot? What will happen to the careers of doctors, similar to Zucker as a therapist, who say, "Mm, no, I don't think this is the best road and I'm not signing off on this. Yeah. We've yeah. we've married capitalism to the will of the self to a cultural uh, abyss where there's yeah. no more meeting, no more no more culture. Yeah. So um so many so most physicians um are paid by hospitals, you know, they're employed by hospitals now at least in the US. And, um, and part of many physicians pay structure now is, uh, patient satisfaction. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the compensation now for, um, for many docs, because obviously the hospitals, right. They want happy patients because happy patients come back to the hospital. And so they've, uh, basically integrated that into uh, the pay structure for, um, for physicians. So what I've witnessed is, um, uh, two things happening. One is that physicians are really, and obviously, right. You want your doctor to have good bedside manner and to be approachable and friendly and, and, um, um, and all those things, you know, that's just good, good, decent behavior. Uh, but, um, you know, I've seen physicians uh, very reluctant to say no to patients when they ask for things that, um, might not have evidence to support them. Um, and, and also, I, I'm seeing uh, physicians reluctant to take on uh, patients who uh, may be uh, more difficult to, uh, to take care of uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, who, who may be more likely to complain. Um, so it really has, I think, it, it doesn't take much to, to subtly shift uh, that patient-physician uh, interaction. And it really should you know, in an ideal world, that interaction should be, you know, based on, um, uh, you know, the foundations of that should be ethics, uh, honesty, and, and uh, applying evidence-based medicine to make recommendations. And then when these other, other factors uh, come into the room, um, it, it, it can very easily alter, alter that relationship in unfavorable ways. Um, and then, you know, I think you brought up a great point about uh, this, the, you know, this new phenomenon, this, you know, it's been termed rapid onset gender dysphoria. So essentially, you know, this, this framework of, of uh, uh, you know, transgenderism has existed, you know, as you mentioned, going back uh, to the 1950s, uh, uh, but then, right, all of a sudden, so, so, and it probably had to do with the introduction of puberty blockers in the early so 2010 or so in the United States. <clears throat> so basically the puberty, puberty blockers, uh, in my opinion, they uh, once word got out that, uh, you know, the, uh, that distressing puberty could be halted, um, you know, if, if, you know, and for young women in particular uh, with autism or struggling with same-sex attraction, uh, or history of trauma, um, other uh, psychological diagnoses, um, you know, start to go through puberty, which uh, is a momentous change physically, psychologically, um, socially, uh, you know, so, okay, now I'm a, I'm a distressed individual and I have the opportunity going through this distressing event 
which is at baseline distressing and now more distressing for whether it be, you know, um, uh, autism or the things I mentioned, um, that essentially it appears, and there needs to be study done, more study on this, uh, appears to have, have triggered a, a social contagion. <clears throat> um, and that's certainly what many of us have witnessed in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, we, we talked about the peer group uh, contagion uh, where, okay, I, I can stop my puberty or I can take testosterone to alter how I look and uh, how I feel. And testosterone is, you know, it's, it does, it's psychoactive. Uh, it, um, it, uh, you know, gives confidence, et cetera. And okay, here's, here's a solution to, uh, to these, uh, this distress that I'm feeling. And so it's triggered this, you know, this massive wave, as, as you mentioned, of predominantly adolescent uh, girls, you know, females uh, declaring, you know, transgender identification uh, with, and, and, you know, this group looks nothing like the traditional childhood onset uh, gender dysphoria uh, that was longstanding and traditionally uh, uh, males. So uh, yeah, there's been a, there's been a complete shift in, in the demographic and I attribute, you know, it's, it's a perfect storm essentially of, uh, we've, you know, there's a, a powerful lobby, uh, with a small group of dedicated, uh, and ambitious physicians, um, supporting that lobby. Uh, and now the introduction of a medical intervention, uh, that can halt a, uh, a distressing, uh, event for some adolescents, namely puberty. And also the media is another layer on this, I've noticed, because as you saw, maybe if you saw the Jazz Jennings reality TV show, not just there, everywhere you go yeah. where they're interviewing parents, parents are yeah. feeling awfully proud of themselves and getting a lot of backslaps for being supportive of their transgender child and so brave. You've seen the words being used. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I do find it completely an inversion of honesty and of bravery. Uh, I'm sorry to say this, but mm -hmm. I, yeah. I think that these are overused terms for one. I mean, really, what's brave? <laughs> uh, I think we use these terms mm -hmm. very slipper, in a slippery way. And I don't think there really are more than cliches in the sense of why are we validating what should be private medical decisions, first of all? Why has this become even a public reality TV show? Something that really strikes me as ill-founded about the Jazz Jennings show is that people were witnessing a young boy, young man's life being ripped from him in a very grotesque, almost carnival circus-like way, you know? Uh, what will happen yeah. to him in 20 years right. if and statistically when he is yes. very fraught with various mental health issues to include the fact that he wakes up and realizes at the age of 16, he was a circus mm -hmm. freak. I, I'm sorry to put it like this, but we know mm -hmm. the history of freakery. We've seen there's various movies about what happened when the French went to South Africa and brought mm -hmm. this hot and tut, as they called her, back and caged her for years mm. until she died, a very tragic death. We know what mm. happens to these people. This is just a postmodern freak show in my, in my view. And I think it's a very cruel one because 
these people who genuinely have gender dysphoria or who genuinely are caught up in the social contagion are not being addressed by adults in the room. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, that, um, you know, that show certainly, I think, you know, those and shows like, like that, uh, um, contribute to, uh, you know, the social contagion aspect of this. Um, it's interesting. There was a, a documentary in, in Sweden, uh, called the trans train, which basically took the opposite approach and highlighted a young woman. I don't know if you saw it, uh, who, uh, yeah, who, um, right. She was, uh, you know, it was the wrong decision for her and, and, uh, uh highlighted uh, the impact that that had had on her and, and, um, it, you know, the number of referrals in Sweden after that documentary, and, and obviously it's hard to know if that was a direct correlation, but the number of referrals seemed to be uh, dropping off. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, that show, the, that Jazz Jennings show, it, it showed a lot of, uh, highlighted a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the issues. I think um, many of the parents are um, essentially, you know, threatened with this uh, uh, risk of suicide, it, it gets uh, held over their head. So, um, it, because pretty much any, anywhere, if you if you bring an adolescent to a gender clinic, it's it's going to be an affirmation uh, only experience. And so, you know, the clinicians um, will hold this threat of, well, you know, your your child's going to kill themselves if 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 you don't uh, support uh, their transition and and et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's just simply no evidence to to show that. Um, you know, we do know that kids who are transgender and identified in adolescents, they do have um, higher uh, risk of uh, suicide. It's still low overall, but it is higher than the general population and, and correlates with the number of underlying um, psychiatric diagnoses. Um, so I think you know, some of the parents are, maybe many of the parents basically uh, feel that they have no options because uh, of the cultural environment and then the direct message that the uh, the doctors will give them uh, when they consult with them is, oh no, you must uh, support this transition. This is settled science and, uh, you know, you'll, your, your kid will kill themselves if, if you don't. Um, and, and also, so that's, I think that's how a lot of parents find themselves in this, in this situation, uh, with really no good place to find information. Um, and then also, you know, uh, uh jazz, he had his puberty blocked at a very young age. Um, and as a consequence, uh, when he had the uh, genital surgeries and he had complications, um, you know, very little tissue because it stunts. Uh, general development. Uh, so there was not tissue available uh, for, um, uh, you know, for the operations that he had. And, um, uh, you know, that's, that's also a reality that is not, I don't think adequately discussed uh, with families uh, when they present with a young person who's distressed. So it's, uh, it's a bad situation um, uh, all around. Yes. Yes, and also the fact that back to the 1950s, as a, I mean, many men are clued into this too, by the way, but I'm speaking as a woman right now. When I 
hear this feeling like a woman. I've given birth to three children. I really don't know what they're talking about in the sense of mm. what the heck. It's not, um, it's not like that commercial from the 1970s in the States. Anjali, there's this woman that says, I can bring home the bacon fried up in the pan. And she's like decked out in a really ridiculous evening gown and that no one would wear to cook dinner, but that's what she's doing. And I think of that a lot when I hear them say, but I feel like a woman inside. And I'm like, but just be yourself. Be one of the million rock groups of the 1980s that the men were wearing makeup, Duran Duran, all of the yeah. men were wearing makeup, yeah. not just boy George. I mean, yeah. I, I, I dare anyone to find me a rock star from the 1980s male who was not wearing makeup and funny hair. And, yeah. you know, so I, you know, I keep thinking, well, what is this impetus towards estrogen or hormones? And now this, this survey by JAMA about transplanted uteri. And why not just tell the gender dysphoric subject, if you really want to feel like a woman, I'll give you a pay cut. You know, I mean, I'm being tongue in cheek here, but it's mm -hmm. always mm -hmm. about the most, to me, the most far-fetched things about being a woman, because being a woman is about many things. And it's less and less about discrimination in many societies or it's differently about like we're facing this kind of weird fetishization from the transgender narrative which I never thought I would have to answer to in my life because I felt very free as a woman until this narrative jumped up out of media pages everywhere and I have to what you have a pronoun because I don't have a pronoun look at my name I get emails 50 times a day saying Mr. Vigo I'm fine with that. I don't care. I'm not going to sue anyone. How is it that medicine has been the gateway? Medicine slash law has been this gateway to giving these people some kind of certificate of authenticity when all of us deal with struggles in life. All of us have these, these struggles with even our own authenticity. Isn't that what life's about? Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a great point. I think it gets back to um, uh, it get, gets back to your earlier point. About, you know, stereotypes and you know behavior and preferences are not um, don't define one's sex. And I, I don't, I, I, you know, I think that that where that went off the rails, you know, I I think. I think the lobbying effort, essentially something that was almost obvious and taken for granted, um, you know, this intense lobbying effort has, has basically um, erased that. And, and so it's, it's almost as if we have to, you know, bring people back up to speed on this. Okay. No, you know, personality and preferences, there's a wide variation within each sex. There's overlap between the sexes. And, you know, your personality traits and your preferences are, uh, you know, not your sex. Um, and, uh, you know, the more that I, you know, am working in this, in this field and, and reading and learning, um, you know, I think, I think there's, there's been a very effective uh, lobby to argue the opposite, right? Which is no, you're, 
your personality and preferences uh, are your sex, you know, your gender is your sex. And, um, and that's just, you know, that's, it just flies in the face of common sense and actual scientific literature. Um, so that, that needs to be corrected. And when, an, when a bad idea permeates, permeates the culture, um, in a sense, almost like a social contagion itself, this concept of gender identity, how quickly it, it permeated throughout the entire culture. Uh, it takes a long time and a lot of effort to, uh, to undo that. And, um, so it's, it's definitely a, it's definitely going to be, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not naive about that. I think it's going to be, be a while before basically this, this bad idea is, is rolled back. Certainly it's going to be a struggle for the next four years, given that Biden has now appointed Rachel Levine, a transgender identified male as the assistant health secretary who has worked on the transition of children from what I've read. So this, uh, a pediatrician who enables this at the height of this discussion in the UK, which has sort of blown the circuits worldwide open for practitioners, therapists to speak out before it was not that way. Even two years ago, you couldn't say very much. And we've got someone who doesn't know the difference between sex and gender as number two in one of the highest offices of health in the United States. Yes. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think, I think um, when, you know, this is all a consequence of basically the mainstreaming of a, an idea uh, that is, you know, this gender identity idea that, um, you know, came from the, came from the lobby um, and, you know, has it worked very hard to to shift public opinion away from away from scientific reality, and uh, they've been highly effective. Um, and so, you know, the the situation that we're facing, and and there's and there's obviously a a, a you know there's a there's a cost to that. Um, you know, there's a cost, uh, you know, to the Young, young adolescents who get caught up in in uh, you know this this idea that um, by halting their puberty or cross sex hormones that uh, this will uh, you know relieve their distress long term um, you know there's a there's a social cost that you've that you've discussed uh, and so uh, you know when I, I really I really fault heavily if I if I take a look at the big picture. Uh, the medical societies, and I, I think, is similar to how individuals in in society they you know they want to be accommodating and they don't want to hurt feelings and 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 all you know all based on uh, um, you know decency, uh, basically allowed the perpetuation of uh, unscientific ideas and didn't question with enough rigor. The medical societies did not question with enough rigor. Uh, the uh, the science behind these interventions, and as a consequence, uh, they took off and and uh, and permeated the rest of the culture. 
and and I might be a little, uh, you know, uh, biased against the medical societies because that's, you know, my my life and um, you know my uh, my frame of reference essentially is that I I expect other physicians and I expect our societies to our medical societies to uh, to hold the line. Uh, even when under significant pressure uh, to hold that line and to say, no, um, there's, there's no scientific evidence to support these interventions at this time. Uh, they should be considered experimental and experimental therapies belong in uh, controlled trials, not out in the general population. Uh, and uh, when interventions, you know, such as puberty blockers that are experimental end up out in the general population. Um, and they, they don't have evidence to support their effectiveness. A lot of harm can be done. Uh, and, and I think that's what we're seeing. So it's, it's really, I've been very disappointed personally, uh, and have felt very let down by uh, academia and, and the medical societies. I think it's a, a really a, a stunning failure on their part. Um, and, uh, and we're seeing the consequences of that.